Let's pray. Lord, the, we come before you humbly this morning. You are God and, and we're not. Your ways are higher than our ways and we humble ourselves before you this morning. The only reason that we gather here is because you are calling a people and drawing them out from among the earth who are a people for your name, who are a people for your glory, a people who live according to your ways and whose motive is always your glory. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning we would not be half-hearted as we gather, but we would be wholehearted. I pray that uh, the songs that we just sang were, um, that that was worship in spirit and in truth. I pray that we don't simply honor you with our lips. Lord, I'm so thankful for your word. I'm thankful that week by week we get to hear it preached and hear it taught, and then we get to walk in it together. And we get to hold each other accountable to it together. And no matter how deep we go in it, it goes deeper. And this process of sanctification is sweet because of your breathed out word. It's hard sometimes, but it's always so good and so worth it. And we would not feel that way if you had not changed our hearts from living for ourselves to hearts that live for you. What I pray for uh, Trent Brown at a Gateway Fellowship this morning. Pray for he and Natalie and that their marriage would be sweet, that they would be trusting you and worshiping you together and enjoying you together. Pray for the two kiddos and that their family is walking together in the Word. Pray for his ministry at, at, a, at Gateway Fellowship. And uh, I pray for his involvement also at Greenville Christian School and, and coaching and teaching and all the different things he does. I, I pray that you would um, help him to lead well and enjoy you and put you first in everything. And I pray that this morning that people is worshiping wholehearted, putting your glory on display, being lights that shine bright. Lord, this morning for us to have any understanding in any of this, we trust you and we look to you and we need you deeply. We gather here together as a people who are called out for your glory, but a people who are very needy, desperately needy, for you to show us and equip us and guide us and warn us and direct us and protect us. So, Lord, we, we thank you for this time. We pray that you would sharpen our, our minds and, and engage our hearts so that this isn't just a, an academic time where we learn new things about you. But I pray that it, it, uh, it is the two-edged sword of the word and it does what you've designed it to do. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Isaiah 58, please. This is uh, part two of a sermon we started last week that, of what God expects from his vineyard. Really, what we're talking about very basically is helping people. And if I was to take a show of hands, you know, who, who thinks it's good to help people? There wouldn't be many that, you know, cross their arms like, not me, I'm not for that. But then when you look at some of the details and you look at some of the sacrifice that goes into truly helping people, um, Things change, and sometimes uh, what happens and what has happened with the people of God is that our actions are not matching up with the things that we're proclaiming, the things that we seem to, to say out loud, oh, yes, this is good. And sometimes it doesn't match up because we, we lose sight of um, God's directives. We lose sight of his purposes, 
and we lose sight of our purpose as his children, as image bearers. And so this morning in Isaiah 58, that's what's happened with God's people. So let's read Isaiah 58, verse 1. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and impress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours will not make your voice to be heard on high. He's saying that what you're doing on Sunday is not matching up with your work day. You're, you're, you're outwardly religious, but you're still a jerk at the office, and you're oppressing people, and you're afflicting people, and it doesn't match up. This is insincere. Look at verse 5. It's such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself, as it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him. Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking wickedness, that's a sign of showing disrespect. And if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom shall be as the noonday, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. And you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly. Then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Last week, what we considered from Isaiah 5 was that God has planted a vineyard, and his vineyard is his people. So we need to view ourselves sitting here this morning as a vineyard planted by the hand of God. And what's happening in Isaiah 58 is God is rebuking his people his children, through the prophet Isaiah for not producing the fruit that he expects. You would imagine that the planter of the vineyard would have certain expectations, and when he surveys his vineyard and things aren't right, he would have something to say about that, especially when it's God. And so here, he doesn't see what he expects, and he's rebuking his people. His people, the Israelites, are more impressed with themselves than God is. They're far more impressed with themselves, so much so saying, God, check us out. Why aren't you hearing our prayers? We are awesome. And God's saying, no, no, there's some things missing. Let me show you. God's disdain comes from the fact that though they seek him daily, 
though they desire to know more about him, though they're eager to learn more and more about who this God is and what this God does and what this God expects, they have forsaken the call to actually do righteousness, to actually do righteousness. They've forsaken God's call in their lives, namely to break the bonds of affliction for those who are in it, to feed the hungry, to house the homeless, to clothe the naked, and to respect the disrespected and the unrespectable. To do these things faithfully is what it means to abide in the true vine, as we've learned in John 15. Jesus is the true vine. To abide in the true vine is to make sure we're living this out, not just as projects, but as a part of who we are as a people. This is what it means to be doers of the word and not only hearers of the word, to prove your faith by your works, good works done in faith. In short, Israel loves to show up in their Sunday best on time, even when it's raining, And they love to hear more and more and more about God and his ways. Then they show up for small group and they talk about what they heard on Sunday. Then they see their Israelite friends at Molina's and Walmart and they talk about it even more. But the ways that they talk are not the ways they're walking. They're not doing righteousness. What we found last week is that, I'll use the term social justice. It's not as much of a biblical term. It's kind of something that's been separated out wrongly. But what we looked at last week was this term social justice, which means things like helping, feeding the hungry, taking care of the homeless, the widows, the orphans, those who are afflicted, those who are in bondage in any way to help them. That it only finds its true worth within the gospel, and the gospel is really incomplete without us doing that. It's a part of the gospel. If we're living out the gospel, putting the glory of God on display through the good news of Jesus Christ, this is part of what we do because it's who we are. And one is never to be abandoned for the other, because in doing so, neither is complete, and you can't really understand either of them rightly. Neither is a proper display of fruit according to the desire of the vine dresser. God is revealing that we're not to be known by what we don't do. That's often how it is with Christian people. Well, what are the Christians like? Well, they don't talk like this. They don't listen to this kind of music. They don't watch these kinds of movies. It's good to be moral. It's not right to proclaim Christ and go live in a completely immoral way, but that's not enough. We're to be known by the things we actually do. We are not the frozen chosen. We are those who have been loved with a perfect and divine love that goes beyond our own means and frees us up to love more, not less, to help the afflicted more, not less. It's not a matter of things we just do sometimes. It's not a weekend project and a fundraiser. It's who we are. The fruit is woven into the very fabric of our daily walk, where society, a society of a vineyard society, planted by God, we're characterized by justice, fairness, equity, concern for the poor. We do what God calls us to do as obedient, image-bearing children, and God does a work after that, and in that, that goes beyond what we can do. See, if we just try to do things and, and make things change in people, and it's all void of the understanding that God does a lot more than us, even collectively. Um, we lose sight of something important that God is doing more in the, in the soul of a person than we could ever do. He does a work in the soul that we're actually incapable of. But what we are capable of is doing what he called us to do faithfully, proving our faith by our works. This week, last week we looked at why. We, we wanted to look at Isaiah 58 and say, why are we supposed to like, take care of the hungry and the homeless? Or, are, are they a nuisance? Are we supposed to welcome them? And, and, and why? And, and so we looked at the why, and this week we're looking at, at how. How do we do this wisely? How do we keep the right motivation? 
How do we keep from being bad stewards of our resources and our time? Because I guarantee you, you can help people and start helping people, and then you're not going to have time for your family. You, you won't have time. I mean, there's lots of help that's needed. So it takes a wisdom among the people to make sure that we're, we're spending and being spent rightly on souls, using our resources and time. We're focusing on that this week, and there's really two things that we're talking about. We're talking about a heavenly kingdom ethic. When I say an ethic, I'm saying that you're actually doing something because of what you believe. A heavenly kingdom ethic versus a worldly kingdom ethic. And that sounds really fancy, but it's really not. First, the worldly kingdom ethic is this. If you live according to just this worldly, temporal kingdom ethic, that means that you are living in a way where your greatest concern is temporary judgment that has temporary consequences. So you're going to look for temporary salvation, usually in something man-made. That could be like me saying, you need to worship a Babylonian, or the, me, I'm not Babylonian, I probably wouldn't say that, but a bad Babylonian in our midst, if they were to say, worship Babylonian gods, or life's going to be hard from you, or for you, and you could say, okay, well, I'll worship Babylonian gods, I don't want life to be hard. What you're seeing is that your greatest concern is this temporary issue, temporary judgment that has temporary um, consequences. So you're going to look for a temporary salvation in a man-made thing. It could be, hey, times are tight, and you really shouldn't spend your money helping other people. There's no, there's no telling what tomorrow holds, so just, just put it all away and, and don't give to, to anybody. Don't help anybody. And, and that would be a way of saying, well, that's a man-made way of, of trying to avoid temporal consequences because that's what's really important. The opposite of that, the thing we're focusing on today, the thing that's really more important is this heavenly kingdom ethic. What that means is that our greatest concern is eternal judgment. And we believe that the way we live now has eternal consequences, and that means that we need eternal salvation. And because we have received that in Christ and we know that it's bigger than just the things we see here, we live in a certain way. And that's what I, that, the way I'm talking about is this heavenly kingdom ethic. We do what God tells us to do. We live according to his purposes and not our own. When someone says, put your trust in me and you'll be okay, we say, I'll put my trust in God. Thank you. When someone says, um, I, I'm the one who will, will, will provide for you. No, the Lord is my provider and I'm not going to forsake him because of something temporary. So we live according to a heavenly kingdom ethic. We'll talk more about it in a moment. So these very same verses in Isaiah 58 are the verses we looked at to understand why we help the afflicted. And now we can read those same verses. It's so cool how the word works. No matter how deep we go, it goes deeper. We can read these same verses with different lens. And God tells us how as well in those same verses. And in fact, he tells us so much in the how and the details that we won't cover all of it today. Or it would be a really long sermon and y'all would not like me after that. So look at verse 1. In verse 1, God says, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet. He's saying to the prophet Isaiah, get all up in their face as though it was a trumpet in their face. They're thick skulled and you need to raise your voice because they're not doing what I'm telling them to do. It's not enough to say, please help the afflicted. You got to get in their face, get their attention because they're hard hearted and they're not listening to me. The prophet Isaiah is told to address them, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. There's two things that come out in that that are very important. My people and the house of Jacob. In understanding how we help people, we have to be mindful of not forgetting who we are. God refers to us as, as his people, the house of Jacob. He intentionally takes us back to the beginning. 
He reminds us that we are not our own, but his, indicating that we live not according to our own ways, but we live according to the ways that God would tell us to live. The phrase, the house of Jacob, takes us back over a thousand years. It reminds you of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and the 12 tribes and the Exodus and the temple and all these different things that happen throughout the course of history where God is redeeming a people for himself and those people are called covenant people. A covenant people are a people who have been engaged by God and God says, I'm your God, you're my people, and these are the terms. They're my terms. You live according to my ways, according to my covenant that I am making with you. And it's interesting, there was one uh, commentator who, who made a wonderful point that he talks about how the prophets would address God's covenant people. The prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and many others. And they address God's people as a people with special responsibilities based on their special relationship with God. Saying, you're a covenant people. You're supposed to be living in a certain way. And so oftentimes the prophets were reminding God's people, hey, you are a special people on this earth. You, you're for God's glory, and you have special responsibilities that go along with that because of God's design in this. God's people are a vineyard planted by his hands, and he rightly expects certain fruit. So don't forget who you are in this process. The second thing is in verse 2. They seek me daily, delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments, and they delight to draw near to God. What God's people have done is they have abandoned doing righteousness, and they're asking God for righteous judgments. It's like walking up to someone and punching them in the face and saying, what do you think about me? Well, I think you have no self-control, and I hurt right now. Um, and God's saying, I'm God, and you're not doing, you're, you've abandoned righteousness, and you want righteous judgment from me? What's happening is that God's people, in their blindness, they don't know what they're asking for. They've lost sight of the purposes of God and mistakenly think that their shiny veneer of religiousness and religiosity is enough. What they're asking for is their shame, and what they're actually practicing is idolatry. So we can't lose sight of doing righteousness, because what often happens is you end up practicing idolatry, just like the people of God here. Rather than delighting to draw near to God, they really delight to draw near of their version of God. Got to read between the lines here a little bit. It says they delight to draw near to God, but they're really delighting to draw near to their version of God, a mighty and loving heavenly Father who cares little about what they actually do. It's like Israel at the Mount of at the, uh, the base of Mount Sinai. The ground shook, thunder and crashings of lightning, and they were terrified. And so according to Aaron, they threw some gold in the fire, and out popped this golden calf. Crazy how that happens. And they said, this will be our God, because really, what's more timid than a golden calf that can't talk or hear? And if you don't like the way it looks when it's looking at you, you can just kind of turn it around. Their God freaked them out. And they said, I'll worship this because it doesn't freak me out so much. And in Isaiah 58, God's people are, are trying to draw near to their version of God. They're guilty of idolatry in the same way. They've kind of made their own little timid golden calf. They want a God who would not actually um, need an ethic to be pleased. What they're delighting to draw near to would be a God of pleasant ideas and concepts rather than a God of hard, unrewarding, and oftentimes very unpleasant work. 
That freaks him out. Let's make our own version of a timid golden calf. Ben made a comment at the end of the message last week that this message to those who need help, to those who are afflicted, to those who are in dire straits, to those who it's always an emergency, um, he said that's often a ministry to the disappointing. It often just, there's a lot of heartache involved, and, and it's very hard, and it's very emotional. And a lot of times you're dealing with people who didn't have a mom or dad to teach them follow-through and integrity. They didn't have a mom or dad who taught them how to balance their checkbook. And so this ministry that we have is oftentimes very disappointing, and it's hard. And God calls us to a ministry that is sometimes unpleasant. But his encouragement here is don't abandon righteousness. Don't make your own version of me, and don't make your own version of what I tell you to do. Stick to what I've said because I am God, and be encouraged that there's reward in it, eternal reward that is like the entire second half of Isaiah 58 that we'll look at. But God is saying, don't abandon righteousness and don't forget who you are. Look at verse 3. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Has that really been out of shape? God's people are like, man, we're, we're do, we are good at this. God, look at us. They're showing that their hope and their expectation is God, see us. God, acknowledge us. What should they have been doing? Their desire should have been to truly see God with the eyes of their hearts. Their desire should have been to truly acknowledge God with acts of righteousness, doing righteousness. They were saying, eyes on us, God. And God's saying, no, eyes up here. Reminded me of Romans 14, where the Jews and the Gentiles are becoming what's known as this church, and they're meeting under the same roof, and they haven't exactly had the same upbringing at all. And the Jews are looking at the Gentiles saying, look at us, do what we do. And the Gentiles are looking at the Jews saying, no, look at us, do what we do. The meat's fine. And God's saying, no, look at me. Quit trying to have your own acknowledgement. Quit doing things for yourself. Quit thinking that you got it right. Don't put your eyes on earthly things. Set your eyes on the things above. Look at me. You're not God. We look to him and acknowledge him, not vice versa. The second part of verse 3, if you turn your page, if you've got ESV, it's just the second part of verse 3. It says, Behold, the day of your fast, uh, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure, and you oppress all of your workers. The second part of verse 3 is God calling them out on their motive. He's saying, I know you think that what you're doing is good really just because you're doing it, but your motive is totally wrong. And you got to know that the motive matters. It's not enough to just change our behaviors. It's not just a fruit problem, it's a root problem, as Tripp said in his study. The problem is at the root, not just the fruit. Don't just change your behaviors. When you are parenting your children, you, just don't, you don't want them to just do what's right because you told them to do it right then. Change the behavior. You hope to raise them in a way where they desire to make choices that are glorifying to God. Even when you're not there saying, do this, don't do this, do that, don't do that. You want them to make those decisions because of where their heart is, as a form of worship. And God's saying, your motives are wrong. And for Israel, it's not enough for them to just change their behaviors here. Because frankly, it would be very easy for Israel to just start helping other people because they like the way it made them feel. Their motive would be the same. It's still self-serving. But hey, God, look at all these people we're helping. It feels good, and we look even more awesome. It's not enough to just change their behaviors. Their motive has to be right. God is saying, you're not God. Keep your eyes on me and check your motive. And verse 4 explains why. Behold, 
You only fast, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. God's saying when your motive is wrong, the result is going to be wrong. The wrong motive will lead to the wrong result. In this case, self-serving acts of perceived righteousness result in violence and wickedness. That's not putting God's glory on display. When you think that what you're doing is good, yet you're still violent and wicked and you're still oppressing and you're not helping with affliction, you're contributing to affliction, something's backwards, out of order, not right. And what God is saying is true religion is not self-glorifying, it's God-glorifying. So if you're increasing in your religious ways, but you're also increasing in violence and oppression and affliction, you're not putting my glory on display the way I've told you to. Religion, religious activity that is hypocritical, insincere, self-serving, and lacking wholeheartedness will hinder our prayers as well. Look at what it says. It says your, your voice will not be made, will your voice, this will make your voice, I'm going to start at the beginning of the verse. <laughs> Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Should we care? about that? Should we care if our voice is heard on high? Yes, we should. This is a sign of our, our prayers being hindered because of unrighteousness, a sign of our prayers being hindered. Um, this reminds me of 1 Peter uh, 3.7. Turn there, keep your finger in Isaiah 58, but turn over to 1 Peter 3.7. There's a few instances in the scriptures where we see that our way of living and our disregard for God's commands can actually hinder our prayers. And it should be very sobering when we look at these things. 1 Peter 3.7 says this. The other example we see is in the marriage between a husband and a wife. And God says in 1 Peter 3, uh, 1 Peter 3 verse 1 through 7. Likewise, Wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Uh, then you go down to verse 7, and it says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. What God's saying here in First Peter is that he so highly esteems the relationship between a husband and a wife because it represents the relationship between Christ and his church that if things are imbalanced, if there's not understanding there, he will in fact interrupt his communication with us until there's right understanding between the husband and the wife. That should shake you a little bit. What God's saying is, it's really important that you're putting my glory on display in the way that I've commanded you. And when you're not, and when you're disregarding that, I'm going to get your attention by hindering our communication with each other on purpose. I'm going to get your attention because you need to not overlook this anymore. You need to make sure things are right. You need to pay attention to it, and you need to submit to my word. There's a problem that needs to be fixed, and I will get your attention, is what God is saying, in a like manner. When our religion is merely self-serving and without actual works of justice and mercy, God will likewise interrupt our communication with Him. 
And how can we expect success in anything without prayer? What this means is that if you were to say, my prayers just don't feel like they're going through the ceiling. I feel like my prayer life is just dry and malnourished. And I'm trying, but, but something's wrong. And what God is saying is, in my word, I've shown you that you need to look at at least a couple things. If you feel like your prayer life is dry and malnourished and your communication with God is, is hindered, take a look at your marriage. Husbands, are you living with your wives in an understanding way? Take a look at how you're engaging other people. Are you doing actual acts of righteousness? Because what God is saying is that the way that you're doing things and abandoning to do righteousness will not make your voice to be heard on high. God is telling the Israelites, your voice will not be heard on high because of your unrighteousness. Romans 1 says the wrath of God is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. So in effect, what God is saying is your voice will not be heard because your unrighteousness is suppressing the truth. That means that when people look at your life, they don't understand me more. They understand me less because you're misrepresenting me. And I will hinder your prayers. This needs to be right. You're not rightly representing me. Your prayers remain unanswered. Look at verse 5. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed? spread sackcloth and ashes under him. Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? What God is saying is that if they're truly humble, he's going to accept their worship. But if they're not humble, they're not even really worshiping. It's idolatry, like we talked about a minute ago. He says humility is key. There is a humility that we learn as we serve people, but to truly serve people faithfully, there must be a humility that is there in Christ before we even go and engage them. There's something that's learned in the process, but Christ has modeled perfect humility for us, and we need to look at it closely. Turn to Philippians 2. You can just earmark Isaiah 58. We'll we'll, we'll be going back to it regularly. Philippians 2 is an account of God's perfect humility, and there's a few verses that I want us to look at in that. It's really verses 1 through 18 are very clear, but a few key verses Look at verse 1 in Philippians 2. The humility we need has been modeled in Christ. And for those who are in Christ, his righteousness, his humility is counted as yours. And you are enabled and mobilized and equipped to do a work that goes far beyond yourself. And that humility we gain understanding in these verses. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Church people, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, 
Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And he explains that they're working out their salvation with fear and trembling. And in 14, he says, Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. What do we learn there about the humility of Christ? Well, here, the difference between these verses in Philippians and the difference between the verses in Isaiah is that the verses in Philippians are specifically talking about the way we act towards each other. This vineyard planted by God, these people, us, as we gather, we're supposed to act towards each other in a very particular way. We're supposed to take care of each other. Christ took the form of a servant. You take the form of a servant to each other. Christ looked to others' interests, not only his own. He showed care for those, and he's saying, you don't just look to your own interests, look to others' interests. You're going to take time, you're going to take resources, just like when you look to your own interests, but you also look to others' interests. Take the form of a servant. Count them as more significant than yourself. That's how we act with each other. That's how you act towards your brothers and sisters. Count them more significant than yourselves. Look to their interests too, and take the form of a servant. These are the things we're called to do to each other in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation so that when they look out from the outside in, they see a bright light that shines in darkness. You don't have to turn there, but listen to Galatians 6, 9 through 10. Confirms this call. Let us not become weary in doing good, for in due season, if we do not give up, we will reap. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone especially to those who are of the household of faith. God is showing us that our house must be in order if we help, if we hope to help someone else get their house in order. If the church is jacked up, we're not going to be a real benefit to the community, is what's being said here. Our house must be in order if we intend to help others get theirs in order. As we help to show the love of Christ in practical ways, there's priority given to those in the body, but not to the exclusivity of those who are outside of the body. Because our desire is that they'd be a part of the body, a redeemed people for the glory of God. The reality is that if we aren't taking good care of each other, we're not going to be very good at taking care of others. A lot of this is happening in our small groups right now. Over 90% of our members are in small groups and for those who aren't, there's good reason for it. They have extenuating circumstances, hard schedules, different conditions. And they are also walking with people, just not in small group form. And so in our small groups, we're wanting to make sure that people are taken care of. We're walking in the word, the preached word, which is the imperishable seed. And make sure you know each other. If this is a body of believers where no one has any idea what anybody needs, we're wrong. We should know the needs, and these small groups that we're in are helping for us to weekly be able to hear needs and, and tell needs. Hey, we're having a hard time right now. Will y'all pray through this? And I've seen huge needs met just within a small group. We started our small groups about nine months ago, and that's our focus. Walk in the Word. It's the imperishable seed. Take care of each other. Hold each other accountable. This last month in our small group shepherds and co-shepherds meeting, we decided that it seems like there's good care being given to the body. It seems like our body is in a place where we are taking care of each other and there's not a whole bunch of people just slipping through the cracks who are hurting and we have no idea about it. 
The elders of this body are called to pay careful attention to every member of the flock. And our small groups are a large way in which we do that. And I see people being cared for in a way that I've never experienced before. It's beautiful. And it puts God's glory on display. So the new challenge for our small groups is that um, if we're taking care of each other, and things are good here, and things are in order here, let's make sure we don't do what Israel did and not do righteousness out there as well. So our small groups, there's, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a, a goal that at least once a quarter, each of our small groups are engaging our community, learning what the needs are, learning where we can help, and, and serving our community, taking the form of a servant. Just as we've not looked to our own interests only, but to each other's interests, if that's being covered and that's good, now let's go look to their interests. The long hand of evangelism, as you've heard it said, is not just going and doing projects. It's a healthy church body that's living out loud, bright, salty, in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation. A community that maybe doesn't know God and needs to, and they can see his ways put on display in a healthy body who loves and cares for each other and does not forsake each other and does not live in, an, in only a self-serving way. We, um, we are a people who live this out as part of our identity. It's who we are. And when someone looks into the living room of God's people, they should be overwhelmed at the selfless picture of a unified people truly caring for each other. When they look into the living room of God's people, they should not see a divided people who are self-serving. This is sobering to me because I have to ask the question, what would people see if they get a good candid look at how church people generally treat each other? Are they divisive or are they unified and serving each other? I'm thankful for where God has our body right now. I don't take it for granted. And I see it as his work that goes far beyond what we can even muster. But we got to have our things in order if we, help to, if we hope to help other people. I was talking to Ben yesterday and I was like, you know, like people go to like Dr. Phil to get help, you know. And uh, it'd be, I was thinking, if we don't have things in order here and we think that we're going to have any kind of good impact on the community, that's completely backwards. It'd be like Dr. Phil showing up 30 minutes late to the show, high on PCP, drinking malt liquor, and saying, all right, I'm ready to help. They say, Dr. Phil, it doesn't really seem like you got your own junk together. You're a bit of a mess. Let's get someone else to help who's actually not a total train wreck. See, for us, God says, especially to those the household of faith, but not to the exclusivity of those out there. It's important that we're walking rightly together, and that will have an impact on our community that's more than what we can know. Look at verse 6 in Isaiah 58. This may seem obvious. This is not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? This may seem obvious, but it wasn't obvious to the Israelites. They overlooked this. So I will state the obvious. It takes action, actually doing things, doing righteousness, doing good works that show your faith. Consider the true religion that God is telling him he desires. Loose, undo, let, break, share, bring, cover. These are all active words. 
Consider all the phrases used here in verse 10. Share your bread. In these verses and then also down in verse 10. Share your bread. Bring the homeless poor into your house. Anyone do that this week? Bring the homeless poor into your house? Pour out yourself for the hungry. One commentary says it's not a mere providing of material substances, but a giving of oneself to those in need that we're called to here. Make the point that the gift without the giver is bare. And again, we have our example set for us by Christ. Don't turn here, but listen to these passages in Galatians and Ephesians. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians says 5.2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Verse 8. There's a really beautiful picture shared in verse 8. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard is Exodus imagery. It's meant to take us back in our minds to the time when God led people out of Egypt, his people out of Egypt to the promised land. And as he was leading them out, there was something amazing that happened in the wilderness. And again, don't turn to Exodus, but listen closely. Listen to this part of this narrative and and import yourself and your senses into it and try to imagine what it would be like to be one of the Israelites walking through the desert with this cloud in front of you and this cloud behind you. Because this is the picture of the glory of the Lord being our rear guard. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other. It's a pretty amazing picture. God's doing something amazing for his people right here. And the indicator that he's giving us in Isaiah 58 is he's saying, keep moving forward. Don't just sit there idly. Don't just talk about it. You keep moving forward. You do what I've called you to do. I will light your path and I will cover your rear. You move forward. I'm going to light your path. I'm going to cover your rear. And really important, stay together. Imagine if Israel just scattered. There's no cloud in front, cloud behind God taking them. They're moving as a people, not just a bunch of lone rangers in the wilderness. Stay together. When you're together, doing what you're called to do, moving in the direction you have been told by God, you have a special and divine guidance and protection. We're meant to move together in this call to be a society of God, a vineyard by his planting, his pleasant planting, as it says in Isaiah. Characterized by justice, fairness, equity, and concern for the poor. A people who actually feed and actually house and actually clothe. There's a certain measure of shrewdness and wisdom and insight that is really needed. Like Jesus, who one day fed the multitude and the next day said, you aren't here for the right reasons. You're just here because you're hungry. This wisdom is found in community. It's a plurality of wisdom. It's kind of like our elders. There's not just one of them. Because among them, there's a greater wisdom than any one of them have. The same way in the body of believers. 
There's a wisdom that we absolutely need that we have by God's order and design in community. That's why it's important not to just break away from the church to go do social justice. That's part of the gospel, and we do it together, and we move as one. Work together. In Philippians, you do not see a bunch of separate minds trying to make decisions. You see one mind. Like-mindedness in Christ results in a community that has the goods to make those hard decisions about who to feed and who not to feed. Sadly, we get confused and we don't feed anybody a lot of the time. Those hard decisions about whose bill to pay and whose bill not to pay. Trust me, there's been some hard conversations in this office. When it gets cold outside, people start showing up at the door of this building. During Christmas time, when money's tight, people start showing up needing help. And they're saying, we got these resources, and do we help this person? Is this person taking advantage of us? Is this, uh, do we see signs of anything here? Is there any repentance? Is there salvation? Should we just help this person? They have kids. These people have kids. These people don't have kids. What do we do there? It is hard. And we need wisdom that only exists in community. Who's gas tank to fill? Who's not? We need wisdom to make those decisions. We desperately need the balance that exists in the community of Christ to make these decisions. And look at verse 9, 9 through 11. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry, satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness. Your gloom shall be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. Even though you're helping people, you may find yourself in a scorched place. God will satisfy your desire. And he'll make your bones strong. Even though you're helping people and you're doing what God says, there may be a time where you feel weak and malnourished. And God says, I'm your strength and I'll make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Uh the Near East, this area with Israel and Judah and the ten tribes up here and the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin down here and this divided territory. You've got the Assyrians up here and Egyptians over here. The Egyptians aren't so much of a worry anymore, but the Assyrians and the Babylonians are guys who are brutal and violent and they're growing in power on the earth during this time. And this area is very dry. I want us to understand who God was talking to through the prophet Isaiah when he said this. They were not a people who were in a place with this abundant blessing and piles of extra resources where God's saying, okay, I'm giving you a lot. You really need to go give a little bit away. They're in the midst of affliction. They're in a really hard season. During the time that Isaiah 58 was written, Israel was under intense oppression from the Assyrians. Rather than being attacked in war, they've been attacked in a different way. Northern Israel and the ten tribes have been conquered. The southern territory of Judah remains, and Hezekiah is the king. Hezekiah is a good king. Hezekiah is a good king. Ahaz and Manasseh were on either side of him, and they were bad. They were not good kings, but Hezekiah was good. But Hezekiah is at the end of his rope, freaking out a little bit. The Assyrians have built another wall around the city wall to slowly choke Judah out by limiting what goes in and what comes out. It's cruel what they're doing. And remember, the geographical area is known for its extremely dry climate. So you can imagine what that would mean after a certain period of time. I want us to get the idea of the condition of the Israelite people during this time. And I want you to turn to 2 Kings 18. 2 Kings 18. 
The prophets prophesied over the reign of different kings. And so we can go to the book of Judges and during the Judges. So we can go to the book of Judges and 1 Kings and 2 Kings and we can get parallel accounts of what was going on when the prophets said what they said to the people of God. And so this is the parallel account. This is what has happened while these kinds of things are being said to God's people. In 2 Kings 18, look at verse 13. And I'm going to read through 19.4. This is a narrative And I'm going to read the whole thing because we need to get a feel for what the conditions were when God said, help the poor, feed the hungry, clothe the naked. When God said things and things like that, I want us to understand where they were. 1813, 2 Kings, verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria and Lachish, saying, Lachish, whatever, and saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. Hezekiah, the good king of Israel, saying, man, we are surrounded. This is a tough season. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rebsaris, and the Rebshekah. The Rebshekah is bad. bad, not good bad, bad, bad. And we're going to see that here. He says some pretty staggering things. With a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when this Rabshekah, when they arrived, they came and stood on the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. And when they called for the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. So the guys who need to know what needs to be known to go tell King Hezekiah came out and said, Okay, Syrian representative Rebshekah, what do you want to tell us? And the Rebshekah said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, they're referring to the king of Assyria, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Because Hezekiah has said some bold things. The whole reason that they're surrounding him is because Hezekiah said, I'm not going to pay tribute to you anymore, and I'm not going to worship the Assyrian gods. We worship the one true God. And the result is that the Assyrians said, okay, we're going to lay waste to all the cities around you and surround you and afflict you. So they're addressing what Hezekiah has said previously, and they said, on what do you rest this trust of yours? You seem very bold for a little territory. Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? Do you know who you're messing with? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are now trusting, you are trusting now in Egypt that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. This is a mess. Hezekiah and the Israelite people, they're saying, we trust the one true God, but then they kind of tried to make some deals with, with the Egyptians to get some resources that they needed, and then the Assyrians heard. It's just like it is in our world now. Wait, are you, are you on, who's, who's our ally? Who's working with who? Wait, are you dependent on them for this? Why don't you depend on us? You put your trust in us, not them. It's all man-centered, power-hungry stuff. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, 
Is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before the altar in Jerusalem? This Rabshakeh is turning the people against their king, Hezekiah. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able to, on your part, set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants? When you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen. Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against uh, this place to destroy it? Your God said to me, go up to this land and destroy it. It's a bold statement. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah and Shebna and Joah, said to the Rebshekah, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. He's saying, there's common people here. There's women and there's children. And you're being a terrorist. You're coming in here and you're speaking in our original language and you're going to terrorize them. Speak to us in Aramaic. We understand Aramaic. Just stop talking about all these things where all of these people can understand you. Speak to us in Aramaic, not Hebrew. But the Rabshakeh said to them, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on that wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Yeah, he said it. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. He's saying, your God doesn't cut it. The true king, the king of Assyria, make your peace with him. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine. Who needs the true vine if you have your own vine? And each one of you will eat of his own fig tree. And each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Who needs true living water if you have the water of your own cistern from the king of Assyria? Until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. He's saying, I'll give you a promised land too. Put your trust in the king of Assyria. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying the Lord will deliver us. I'm waiting for the lightning. My God has ears. Your God doesn't even have ears. They might be ears, but they're carved out of wood and you can't hear. My God hears what you're saying. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharavim and Hena and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? No. Who among all the other gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But the people were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn, and they told him the words of the Rabshakeh. And as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he went to Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary and the senior, of the senior priest, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress. Times are hard. This day is a day of rebuke. This day is a day of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth and there's not even strength enough to bring them forth. We are weak. It may be 
They're still hanging on. It may be that the Lord your God, Isaiah, who you've been talking to us about, it may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent mocking the living God. And it may be that God will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is less left. When God's saying take care of the poor and the afflicted, there's a lot who are poor and afflicted because of outside weight, affliction. Israel's being oppressed by some bad dudes and their immediate response here is, what do we do? We feel weak. Times are tough and they're mocking our God. And what does God say to them in Isaiah 58? You serve the one true God and I will not be mocked. During this time of oppression and uncertainty, you worship me only. And part of your worship is to break the bonds of the afflicted, to house the homeless, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, and to respect the disrespected. During this time of uncertainty, that will display the kind of God that I am. As for me, God, while you're giving out of your mess... As for me, God, I go before you with plans that cannot be shaken. I will accomplish all my purpose, and my glory is your rear guard. Keep moving forward. I got your back. You move forward on the path that I have set for you. Do not put your trust in them like they're asking you to. Do not put your trust in their power. Put your trust in me. That's the kind of scenario there. We live in a world full of, put your trust in me. This is your real problem. Put your trust in me. Go to a magazine rack, stand in front of it for five minutes, and you'll have a whole new view of what your real problems are and how you solve them. But really, we're an eternal people with eternal issues, and we have to live according to this heavenly kingdom ethic. For Israel, this is what they experienced. They experienced it here with Assyria. A hundred years later, they experienced it with Babylon. I'll share this with you because I want you to have an idea of the kind of affliction that they were in. A hundred years later was the time of the Babylonian exile. When a godless nation pursues their own desires, they show favor only to those who can benefit them. It's sort of a godless nation default mode and they end up self-serving, brutal, and violent. And the result is that many people are left uncared for and wounded and afflicted because they've not gotten on board with the new program. I mean, you can think of Germany, Nazi Germany. Are you, if you get on board and you can be a benefit to the power that we're building, cool. If not, you're going to have a hard life. It's kind of a default mode for godless nations. About 100 years after the time of King Hezekiah, Israel and Judah both fall and enter into Babylonian exile. This means, in a sense, that Israel, you're now Babylon. Israel, you're now Babylon. You're expected to talk the Babylonian talk and walk the Babylonian walk and worship the Babylonian gods and generally live according to the Babylonian ways. In fact, many Israelites were given new Babylonian names. King Nebuchadnezzar was the king at the time in Babylon, and he was brutal and mean and self-serving. One of the first things he did was bring some Israelites over to Babylon. He started with four, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, because he wanted the best of the best. And over time, over the next few years, he brought like 10,000 Israelites into Babylon. But not all of them. He actually started with these four. What Nebuchadnezzar wanted was the smartest, the richest, the most knowledgeable, 
cream of the crop, the best looking, those who had the most prominent features, those who were the most teachable, bring them to Babylon. Why? Because if they just learn the Babylonian way, they could be of a great benefit to the growing power of this nation. But who ends up being left behind and neglected? If that's all he brings over, who's left behind and neglected and afflicted? In short, all the poor, ugly, uneducated people. You see the trend? It's full of hate. The difference is those who live according to this worldly kingdom ethic and those who live according to this heavenly kingdom ethic. Are you going to put your trust in the earthly king for temporary salvation from earthly judgment? Or are you going to put your trust in the king of kings for eternal salvation from eternal judgment? Are you loving the afflicted along the way? God is saying to his people, even when you're being beckoned to follow the lead of the seemingly powerful, trust that I will guide you continually. When you feel scorched and they offer you a drink in exchange for living the way they live, trust me to quench your thirst. God is saying, when your bones seem weak from malnourishment, trust me to be your strength. And when you see others along the way who are hurting, do to them as I've done to you. Put my glory on display. Look at verse 12 in Isaiah 58. It's the last part of it. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations on many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Why does all that restoration need to take place? Because they've been in a pretty bad season of affliction. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Every time I hear that phrase, I think of the Wizard of Oz. The powerful Oz has spoken. But God's saying, listen to my words. I will protect you. I will guide you. And there's beautiful promises here. It's never wrong to desire the promises of God. It's never self-seeking to be motivated by that which God has promised to his covenant people. It is self-serving when you abandon God's promises for your own desired results. But when you hear God's promises and you trust God's promises and you desire to see God's promises fulfilled... And because of that, you move forward with the community of faith, with the glory of the Lord as your rear guard. That's called worship. This is the sweet aroma and the bright light of God's people being who he made them to be. If your biggest problems are earthly and temporal, then you will seek to find your temporary salvation in human strategies of self-rescue. My problems are just right here, so somebody help me. Okay, good. Next week, the problems do. Okay, someone help me. That's what it means to set your eyes on the thing of earth and not on the things above. If your biggest problem is eternal, then you will seek prophetic promises of divine grace. Throughout all the prophecies, there are promises. And God's saying, keep your eye on the promises. I'm doing a whole lot. There are prophetic promises of divine grace. And probably, no, not probably, scratch that word, absolutely, the most beautiful prophetic promises are of a Messiah. One who will do that which you can't do. One who is never beaten down the way you are. One who is mightier than you can imagine. One who will save you from your shortcomings. One whose righteousness you will be clothed in. 
Isaiah 61 prophesies of a coming Messiah. And look, listen to the words of the prophecy of a coming Messiah. It says, you don't have to turn to Isaiah 61, but it says, the coming Messiah whom the Lord has anointed to bring good news to the poor, who has been sent to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. When Jesus started his earthly ministry in Luke 4, he walks into the temple and they hand him this very scroll of Isaiah. And Jesus opens up the scroll and reads that part, fulfilling the prophecy. I always picture Jesus saying, Booyah! That's me! Isaiah 61 talking about me. He didn't do that, but that's what I picture in my head. He actually sat back down and everyone went, For real? The Messiah who was prophesied by Isaiah and others? You're, you're the one who's here to break the bonds of affliction, to bring a good news to the poor? That's you? Turn to Matthew 25. That same prophesied Messiah. Ben read this after the message last week. It's an amazing piece of scripture. This sweeter picture, this, there's a Messiah that's prophesied who fulfills all the promises of God and we are motivated by the promises of God and that Messiah shows up and, sa- and fulfills the prophecy in Luke 4 and reads from the scroll. And in Matthew 25, that Messiah, Savior, King of Kings, sits and talks about judgment with his children. He's teaching. Look at verse 31 in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his throne, his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, Babylonians, Syrians, Israelites, Americans, all the nations. And he will separate people from one, another, one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, those sheep, the same sheep that he spoke to through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 58, he will say to them, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. A kingdom that can't be invaded by Assyrians or Babylonians. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and in prison and you, vi- and you visited me and I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him. This is their answer. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see, a stranger, see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer to them, truly I say to you, it's huge, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will look to those on his left, the goats. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That's quite different. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. 
Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? When did that happen? Then he will answer to them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these. Hear God saying, as if you did righteousness. You didn't. You did not do it to me. And these will go away into the eternal punishment, but the righteous will enter into eternal life. Ben and I were talking this week, and he brought up that one of the most striking things about this verse, there's a lot that's striking in the verse, these verses, but the sheep seem so surprised, don't they? When did that happen? The sheep weren't like, oh yeah, homeless guy I gave a 10 spot to, that was totally you, I see it now. <laughs> Prison ministry 2003, I thought something was going on there. We did good in that one, didn't we? That's not what they say. They seem surprised. Why? Their surprise came because they were not a self-righteous people doing a bunch of self-serving projects. Rather, they were a humble people, obedient to the call of the Lord. Their care for these unknown representations of their Savior was simply part of their worship. The life that they lived for the glory of God. When God mentioned what really happened, all they could look back on was a life of worship. When did that happen? I was too busy worshiping you. I'll close with a quote from Ed Welch. He's talking about the church. This is a book that we're reading through as a staff right now. It takes the entire church to provide a vague imitation of the glory of God. What do we really need? We need to be a corporate body smitten with the glory of God. Glory of the Lord, our rear guard, committed to the unity of the church and deluged by his love and faithful as we walk together in obedience to him, even in our suffering. We need to need other people less and love other people more. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Lord, your ways are higher than our ways. If we're left to our own ways, we would not do this. And even if we accidentally did it, we would only do it for the wrong motives, could have made us feel good. Lord, in the times where we're enjoying freedom and in the times where we're fearing oppression, in the times where there's plenty, in the times where there's less, I pray that we would do what you call us to, that we would do righteousness. I pray that our our desire and our willingness to give and to pour ourselves out, to spend and be spent on the souls of your children, I pray that those things are not contingent upon how things are going at the time. I pray that you would find us consistent, walking in the manner that you have called us, seeking to put your glory on display in everything at all times, not neglecting each other and being a body that is so healthy, looking after each other. No one's in need. No one's slipping through the cracks. No one is unaccounted for. And I pray that this body is a bright light to a community that desperately needs Jesus, that desperately needs help. I pray that we would have our junk in order so that we could be of help to others. Lord, we love you. We desire for our light to break forth and shine brightly for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in a minute, we're going to share in the Lord's Supper. That's a very sobering message, and I hope you um, 
It's a sobering message to the house of Jacob. I hope you caught that as Scott shared that early. Uh, when the word refers to the house of Jacob, uh, he's speaking to the children of promise. He's speaking to the children of God. He's speaking to cross point fellowship, those who are believing. Very sobering. It's easy for us to, to say those, those foolish Israelites. Uh, but as he shared, I thought, um, I'm pretty anxious about hanging on to my house, my car, my stuff. Um, I'm pretty willing to give uh, in my wealth and my leftovers. I want to share from the word before we go to the Lord's Supper. Uh, we're called to remember Christ in doing this. I want to share out of Ephesians. Remember that you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But you need to remember, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Remember that by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Remember that it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. Remember that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near, by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So remember, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place. Hear this. 
You're being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit.